Reason is itself a matter of faith. It is an act of faith to assert that our thoughts have any relation to reality at all. G.K. Chesterton Welcome everybody to the podcast, Two Guys Searching for Truth on the Road That Never Ends. I'm Credo and my co-host is Glaucon. We both invite you to take historical ideas within their context along with us, examine the thinkers and the timeless ideas they provide to us. These ideas are as relevant today as they were back then. It's our hope and our belief that in doing so would bring us closer to the truth. Just note that the views expressed by the host do not in any way reflect the personal views of the hosts themselves. All right, let's do this. So tonight we're going to be doing our second episode on the I Ching. And the I Ching, the translation of the I Ching I'm going to be utilizing is the Richard Wilhelm translation, which is a very well-known and popular translation of the I Ching. So as we talked about last time, and, you know, it's hard to talk about it enough to really get a handle on it, but we'll say a few more things, right? So the I Ching is the Book of Changes. And it is a book that discusses 64 hexagrams. And those hexagrams, each one is like an archetypal occurrence of social reality. And, you know, Carl Jung was a psychologist, right? He talked about this idea of archetypes. And there are archetypes in the I Ching, as I just said, which is a, often thought of as a divinatory work, an oracle. And tarot cards are obviously an oracle or used in that way to divine things. They're a divinatory tool. And the tarot cards are also archetypes. So each card is an archetype, an archetypal social situation like the I Ching is. They are not the same kinds of things. There are some big differences between the tarot and the I Ching, but they do share that in common. And so the I Ching, as we said last time, is composed of hexagrams that are derived from the multiplication of the eight trigrams. So we said that the eight trigrams were heaven, thunder, water, mountain, earth, wind, fire, and lake. And when you multiply them times each other, you get hexagrams instead of trigrams. And so we can talk about the very first hexagram, which is the hexagram for heaven. And as we said, one of the trigrams is heaven. So for a hexagram to be heaven, it needs to be double heaven. So if we have heaven times heaven, we get the hexagram heaven, which is all straight lines. So there's no broken lines. And when you have only straight lines, you have pure yang. And when you have only broken lines, you have pure yen. So the hexagram, the first hexagram, hexagram heaven, is also known as the creative, and it is the image of heaven, right? It's represented by an unrestricted kind of idea in space. It's conceived of as motion, and the basis of motion is time. So we can see there's some kind of ideas related to physics here in the I Ching. And the hexagram includes also the power of time and the power of persisting in time. 
and that is duration. So the idea of persisting in time, right? Another way of thinking about that idea is that it's the idea of existence, right? Because existence, to exist is to persist in time, right? And so we don't really, we don't understand why things, some things persist in time, why, why we exist or, or what, what that's all about. But we can see that there is a discussion of that stuff in the I Ching. And other things to say about this first hexagram, the creative, is that in terms of social situations, one of the things it says in, in the commentary for this is that when an individual draws this oracle, it means that success will come to him from the primal depths of the universe and that everything depends upon his seeking his happiness and that of others in one way only, that is, perseverance in what is right. And so this sounds a lot like Socrates, right? Because here we see this idea of happiness being connected to virtue. And we know that's kind of Socrates' basic story that he's constantly telling in various ways, right? And so we see that in the very first hexagram, the commentary for the very first hexagram talks about this relationship between virtue and happiness. And it turns out that the kind of storyline in the I Ching, reoccurring storyline in the I Ching, is that our social experience, and by social experience we really mean human experience, and our human experience is shaped by our relationship to virtue or the good. And so it's very, very, in a very basic sense, it's very similar to what Socrates would advocate, which is this idea that your kind of social human life is deeply connected to this idea of virtue and, and, um, and it shapes your experience of things in a very powerful way. Right? And so then we have another thing in the first, very first, the commentary of the very first hexagram. It says, the beginnings of all things lies still in the beyond in the form of ideas that have yet to become real. So here we have this idea that there are ideas which are more real and they give rise to these things in the kind of physical sensible world and are the basis for their reality. Right? So then it goes on to say, but the creative furthermore has power to lend form to these archetypes of ideas. So, I mean, this is like, all of this stuff is like Plato, right? Because here we're talking about something like the forms. And we're talking about the forms being more real than the stuff that has duration in creation or something like that. So it's it's pretty, pretty crazy stuff right off the bat here, just in hexagram number one. So any thoughts about that? Yeah, one thing I would add would be that, and you're absolutely right, it's, you know, remarkable. The When I saw the, the form of ideas that have yet to become real, I was like, okay. <laughs> Yeah, this is this is a little bit more than just your casual overlap. So one thing to add, though, is that the first hexagram is, as you mentioned, it's the image of heaven, energy, that kind of thing. And then you think about what heaven kind of is. Uh, it says that the hexagram is consistently strong in character. It's without weakness. Its essence is power or energy. And this is in many ways, kind of what we would see heaven in general, right? We think of brightness, we think of no weakness, we think of energy. I mean, heaven's supposed to be extremely energetic from Western thought, right? And so uh, I think that's interesting. I think that this is 
the number one, right? The one, we keep talking about the one. I think that there's, that's not a mistake that this is the one that Plato would have referenced. And in many ways, it says that in relation to the universe, the hexagram expresses the strong creative action of the deity. In relation to the human world, it's the creative action of the holy man or sage or the ruler of men who through his power awakens and develops them to a higher nature. And I think that's very, very much what Socrates was saying, as you were saying. I also think that perseverance, which you referenced, and movement and all that, that is change, right? I mean, that is literally definitional change. And so I, I think that all of those things are just really, really interesting. Uh, we mentioned in the last episode about how consistent it all is, but it's not just consistent within itself. It's consistent with nearly much of the universal kind of morality or the universal thinkers uh, out there. And I think that it just starts off wonderful, kind of like the Tao Te Ching did as well. No, that's right. Absolutely. And, and great points. Definitely good points. And so what's interesting is that, you know, people think of yin and yang a lot of times as, you know, you've got the good and the bad, but it's not really like that. It's not that one half of the universe is bad. It's just that one half of the universe depends on the other half. So it's more of a relation of dependence and complementing each other, even though they are opposites also. But it's not, it's not as simple as saying they're opposites. So and what I mean by that is when we look at the next number two, hexagram number two is the receptive or the earth. So we have heaven and earth. And earth is three broken lines for the eight trigrams. That's the trigram of earth. And when we double that up, we get double earth. And so that is the hexagram earth or receptive. And so this is different than heaven obviously it's in a sense the opposite of heaven but that doesn't mean that it's bad or negative and so i'll read a little bit of the wilhelm translation here for the receptive this hexagram is made up of broken lines only the broken lines represent the dark yielding receptive primal power of yin the attribute of this hexagram is devotion its image is the earth it is the perfect complement of the creative the complement not the opposite for the receptive does not combat the creative, but completes it. So it's interesting, right? So in order for heaven, creative, power, energy, to have anything to work with, it's got to have substance. It's got to have stuff. That stuff is the yin. And so when we look at the human body, the yang of the human body is the function, and the yin is the organs. But you're not going to have much of a human body if you don't have the organs. That's the yin of the body. So the yin is the structure, right? So, so the yin and the yang have to both exist for a human to exist. It's not like we're going to say, oh, my organs are bad or something like that. They're not negative. They're just, they're different than the functional aspect, the, you know, energy inside of my body, the ability for me to be animated. Those are yang qualities. My physical movement is a yang quality. The yin part of me is my actual physical body. So that's, a, that's another kind of way to think about it. The other thing I want to say here about this that's really interesting is that when we were talking about love in the symposium and we were talking about God and the fact that God doesn't love, that humans love because they're kind of lacking that. And so we see here in the discussion of hexagram two, it says the attribute of this hexagram is devotion. So the idea is that this 
kind of material stuff is devoted to the kind of heavenly stuff, kind of like naturally devoted to it. So, so that thought that was pretty interesting. For sure. I completely agree. That's, that's really interesting. You know, I made this interesting connection that if this is the receptive one, it's kind of like the earth receives people in a way and that we should take care of it, which is what we, what I mentioned when we spoke about the Tao. I, I thought that was, that was really interesting. No, that's absolutely right. And the thing too about, think about the earth. It receives so much from us, right? So we dump our waste on the earth. We spoil the earth. We cut down fields. We plow fields. We plant crops. We use the earth. And the earth is always there for us. It's always able to absorb that and then gives us more again. And so there is a real way in which it is receptive and receives. And heaven is creative and active, right? So we have this idea of dragons in the heaven and wild horses on the earth. So a lot of times people say that, you know, the receptive, number two, it's like a, a wild horse running around the earth, always in search of noble and worthwhile goals. So it's not that the earth or the yin aspect of human nature or reality is in any way negative. It's just a different aspect of us. So you have this idea of like a person that's actively engaged in the world. So we could imagine, right, a person that's doing a lot of work with people that are in need, maybe helping people, helping refugees, which is something a lot of people are thinking about right now, or helping feed people, or helping create some new thing in science that's going to help people. So those are all ways in which a person is kind of like working kind of close to the material world and close to the receptive nature of things. And then you have this other idea of heaven or being more kind of creative and more active in a kind of spiritual sense where it's not so much about the physical nature of reality. It's more about your kind of spiritual development. And so when I was living in Taiwan, there were like two main schools of two big giant Buddhist organizations. And one of the Buddhist organizations was all about, you need to go meditate and you need to work on grasping your spiritual understanding of reality. And then the other one wasn't interested in that at all. Their whole thing was, you need to go and be of service right now and help people and get out in the world and do something to help someone. So these are two very different ideas about what the right thing to do is. And I think they're, they're both right, <laughs> really. You know, they're just different approaches. Yeah, they also kind of explain, as you've mentioned before, the human curse is, you know, being halfway between the material and the spiritual world, which is like yin and yang, really. I mean, that's, that's kind of, again, another representation of reality. You know, one other interesting thing about Hexagram 2, so it mentions in the commentary that there isn't a dualism here going on because there's a clearly defined hierarchic relationship between the two principles and that's all about the receptive being activated and led by the creative and so i guess you know part of what i was thinking when i was reading this is yeah that does make sense right the successful relationships for example you can think about it in many many ways but if you think about it in the context of relationships successful ones they complement each other extrovert and introvert kind of thing right because you need the sanity of of the introvert and the wild nature of the extrovert to kind of strike that medium, a nod to Aristotle. But 
what do you think about the worry here in setting up a hierarchic kind of male female problem i don't know i mean did you have any thoughts about that or do you think that's just maybe a more modern take on something that would be unintended at the time so i think that's a great question right it's a great question and actually if you look at the eight trigrams they have a familial breakdown as well so you have basically the mother and father are heaven and earth and then you have the other six hexagrams which all correspond to the oldest son, the middle son, the youngest son, the oldest daughter, the middle daughter, and the youngest daughter. So like a perfect family, traditionally speaking, would be a mother and father, and then six kids, three male and three female. And because of their station in the family, where they're at in the family, they have a particular kind of duty that they now owe to the rest of the family. And they have a specific way that they're kind of going to be ideally organized or something like that. So that's that's also, I think, problematic in the way that you were talking about. Now, what's interesting about this is, you know, I, I was talking to a friend of mine about this a while ago, fairly recently, and we, we were talking about this idea of yin and yang. And, you know, what I expressed to this person was that, you know, really all human beings are combinations of yin and yang. So every human being is a combination of yin and yang. And we're all on a continuum, right? So some humans have more yang, some have more yin, but they all have some yin and they all have some yang and in various kind of configurations. So for example, I could possess some very masculine quote unquote qualities in some ways and then have more feminine qualities in other ways. And I could be with a partner who compliments me by possessing the kind of other side of that so that if i'm prone to act in a certain way because of my yin and yang composition my partner kind of is able to modulate or moderate my activity because they possess the kind of opposite side there and it doesn't matter whether you're talking about your kind of biological gender there really what we're talking about is your constitution in a kind of different way you know, although the biological part is part of it. But we're talking about your constitution in a different sense there. So it is very interesting, right? Because you'll have a lot of times you'll run into people that are very kind of masculine people, say, for example. But certain qualities they have, you kind of think, are, well, that's funny that the person does that. You know, maybe they like, you know, certain things that you wouldn't expect them to like, or they have certain qualities about them that you think they shouldn't have because you kind of categorize them in this box of masculinity or femininity. But so I think I think it doesn't really cause too much of a problem because of that way in which we're all kind of on a continuum. And not only are we on a continuum, it's not static, right? We're in flux. So we're also always changing. Yeah, I mean and actually, you know, the way that we view, you know, in at least the more kind of nuanced uh, ways of viewing gender and everything, it, it's a very similar right in fact maybe it's society's own fault that we started putting you know binary labels on gender as well maybe that was kind of a naive or a miscalculation on our part because like you said not only are we in flux but it's a spectrum it's a continuum absolutely no absolutely that's exactly right so we'll look at a couple more hexagrams right so we've got hexagram number five. First of all hexagram number five is water above heaven 
So we've got two trigrams, water's on the top, heaven's on the bottom. So we have a broken line, a straight line, a broken line, and three straight lines. And traditionally you would read it from the bottom up. So you'd actually read it from the first line is the one at the bottom. So the bottom line, the first line is unbroken, 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 broken, unbroken, broken. But anyway, what hexagram five is about is about waiting or nourishing yourself. And so I'll just read a little bit from Wilhelm's translation here. All beings have need of nourishment from above, but the gift of food comes in its own time, and for this one must wait. The hexagram shows the clouds in the heaven, giving rain to refresh all that grows and to provide humankind with food and drink. The rain will come in its own time. We cannot make it come. We have to wait for it. The idea of waiting is further suggested by the attributes of the two trigrams. Strength within, danger without. Strength in the face of danger does not plunge ahead, but bides its time, whereas weakness in the face of danger grows agitated and has not the patience to wait. Right, so a couple things we can say here. I mean, we can say a lot, but a couple <laughs> things we can say. One is, you know, we were talking about the Tao Te Ching the other day, and one of the 81 poems that we looked at was one that talked about, can you wait for the mud to settle, right? So there's this idea of waiting and this idea of not acting until the time is ripe, and also not idle hoping and kind of being fixated on something you want to be the case that's not occurring. So those, these are all kind of pathological behaviors that are gonna undermine us, even though there are things that humans very easily fall into. And so here we see this hexagram warning us not to behave in this way. So not to kind of dwell on the way we'd like things to be, and also this idea that we need to wait for the time and the situation to be exactly right before we act. And so when we think about that last part, it says the idea of waiting is further suggested by the attribute of the two trigrams. Without strength in the face of danger does not plunge ahead, but bides its time. So here, this sounds like Aristotle and this idea of courage and foolhardiness and cowardice being the two endpoints. And that in the middle, there's this idea of courage. And courage is going to be something that happens in the right way at the right time with the right object and all those things that Aristotle told us that would need to, need to happen. And so that sounds very similar here to this idea of waiting. We have to wait for everything to kind of line up in the right way before we can act decisively in that moment. Yeah, I completely agree. I actually had the exact same thing come to mind reading this. And, you know, it's, it is really telling that the Wu Wei, as we talked about it, you know, knowing like to yield for greater things, you know, that can come through yielding and acting at the right time, right? And it's all about being the most appropriate or the most kind of fitting role that you can be. It also kind of, if you zoom out just a little bit, it kind of shows that we are, number one, not really always in control. And that number two, we're part of a process and that the more that we understand that process, the better we can act according to that process. No, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And then going on from here, some more commentary we have for this number five hexagram. It goes on and it says, the strength shows itself in uncompromising truthfulness with himself or herself. So strength shows itself with uncompromising truthfulness to yourself. So being true, being honest with yourself is what they're talking about here. So strength comes from being honest with yourself. And then it goes on and it says, it is only when we have the courage to face things exactly as they are 
without any sort of self-deception or illusion that a light will develop out of events by which the path to success may be recognized. So this is like Plato's courageous philosopher, right? The idea that a real philosopher has to take their own ideas, the way they look at things, and examine those ideas, which is painful and scary and requires courage. And then it says here in the I Ching, uncompromising truthfulness with yourself. So very interesting, I thought. Yes, yeah, no, no, it is. And, you know, I actually started thinking many of the people that we idolize or popularize or, or whatever look up to, it's often for their sense of courage, for being able to stand up in the face of fear and things like that, right? The commentary also goes on to say, for the man who goes to meet his fate resolutely is equipped to deal with it adequately. Then he will be able to cross the great water. That is to say, he will be capable of making the necessary decision and of surmounting the danger. And I thought that was really telling. You know, there's a guy named Roddy McCorley. He was an Irish kind of nationalist who participated in the rebellion in the late 1700s. And anyway, he was arrested, tried, sentenced to be hanged. And the reason why he's kind of known is that, you know, it seems that there was a chance for him to leave or to evade, almost like Socrates, right? And and that's not what happened at all. Uh, in fact, there's a, a famous song that basically says that there was never one of all your dead more bravely died in fray than he who marches to his fate. And that's kind of what Socrates did. And I, I felt that it was just really on point with not only the recognition of many people we see as heroes, but just people who we see as courageous. And I, I thought it was amazing to see this kind of captured in a really clear way that long ago. No, absolutely. And think about it, right? We're talking about this guy right now. <laughs> the reason why we're talking about him right now is because he behaved in that way. Right. If he wouldn't have behaved in that way, we wouldn't be talking about him. You know, and it's the same as Socrates, right? So very interesting. And then there's another part here in the commentary associated with the image of this hexagram. And it says, we should quietly fortify the body with food and drink and the mind with gladness and good cheer. Fate comes when it will, and thus we are ready. So it's interesting, right? So you don't let your mind be trapped, imprisoned by idle hoping or worrying about things. And you allow yourself to be nourished and you bide your time in a healthy and happy way. And then when things change, you're ready for it and you're able to act. And so this is great advice. It's very simple, <laughs> pretty hard to do, <laughs> you know. So we, we haven't really talked about the way in which these hexagrams change into other hexagrams. Let's talk about that for a minute. So we've got six lines. And what happens is, if you think about an archetypal situation, right? So we have, a, we have 64 different archetypal situations. And we were just talking about nourishing or resting or waiting for things to change, right? So that's an archetypal situation in life. And according to the I Ching, right, it's one of 64, at least, at least one of 64. And there are six lines in this hexagram. So there are six basic ways that this hexagram can change. And there are actually more than that because two lines could change or three lines could change or four lines could change or five lines could change or all six could change or any other combination of them could change. So there are multiple ways in which these hexagrams can change into other hexagrams. But what that means is that when a situation like this happens, 
different lines can transform from straight into broken lines or from broken lines into straight lines. And so we'll look at some of the commentary for the lines and we'll look at this one here is nine in the fifth place. So nine in the fifth place, remember we were saying a minute ago that you count the lines from the bottom up. So nine in the fifth place means that the fifth line, which is a straight line, is gonna be changing into a broken line. And then it would change from water above heaven, it would change into earth, three broken lines above heaven, three straight lines. So if that kind of a change happens, then there is a commentary that goes with that changing line. And what it is is, I'll just read it a little bit here. Even in the midst of danger, there come intervals of peace when things go relatively well. If we possess enough inner strength, we shall take advantage of these intervals to fortify ourselves for renewed struggle. So you can just imagine, right? We've been watching the Ukraine-Russia problem on the news, and you can just imagine people in a war zone trying to cope with the horror and stress of that situation, trying to make sure that you have enough food and warmth and fuel to stay warm and all these kinds of things you'd have to worry about. But if you're completely possessed by worry in that situation, you won't have duration. You won't have the ability to, to maintain the struggle. And so here, this hexagram, which it's nourishment, right? It's telling us that we need to make sure that we're taking the time to fortify ourselves for renewed struggle. And Aristotle thought that we shouldn't work to take a vacation. We should take vacation so that we can work. So that, that's kind of a similar idea here. You want to rest up, you want to take it easy so that you have renewed strength and vigor for the fight ahead, right? And so that's kind of what it's talking about here. But then it goes on from that and it says, we must know how to enjoy the moment without being deflected from the goal for perseverance is needed to remain victorious. This is true in public life as well. It is not possible to achieve everything all at once. The height of wisdom is to allow people enough recreation to quicken pleasure in their work until the task is completed. And so we know like a lot of companies today are all talking about work-life balance. You know, work-life balance is important, but this is basically, you know, not a new idea because here we see it in the, the ancient I Ching, older than Chinese language, they're talking about work-life balance. That's absolutely right. I think it's also really important, like we went over with the Tao, it's just that, like I said here, it's not possible to achieve everything at once. It's difficult in a world that makes you, and we'll get to this shortly, a simulated world possibly, that makes you believe that these things are possible. But you're right, that's clouding of the mind and it's distraction and actually goes back to the allegory of the cave and that kind of a thing. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So we've got a couple more hexagrams we can talk about here. So we've got hexagram number eight, which is holding together or a union. And this is the, the kind of like image here is the image of a group of people working together. So this is the idea of working together in a group, right? And so the um, hexagram is made up of water above the earth. So it's water is a broken line, straight line, broken line. And the earth, as we know, is three broken lines. So there's one solid line, fifth from the bottom is a solid line. And then the judgment, the commentary says, what is required is that we unite with others in order that all may complete and aid one another through holding together. So you've got to work in a group sometimes. But such holding together calls for a central figure around whom other persons may unite. 
So someone's going to be the leader of the group, and that's going to kind of naturally happen, whether we want it to or not. To become a center of influence, holding people together is a grave matter and fraught with grave responsibility. It requires greatness of spirit, consistency, and strength. Therefore, let him who wishes to gather others about him ask himself or herself whether he or she is equal to the undertaking. So it's letting you know, if you want to lead a group, you've got to take this responsibility seriously and you've got to ask yourself, are you equal to the task? For anyone attempting the task without a real calling for it only makes confusion worse than if no union at all had taken place. But when there is a real rallying point, those who at first are hesitant or uncertain gradually come in of their own accord. So it's interesting here because we're talking about leadership, we're talking about who should be leading, we're talking about what are the consequences of someone assuming the role of leadership that is not equal to the task, and what does that look like and what does that bring about? And all these are all things that are really relevant to our world today, right? I mean, we have leaders in the world and they're going to more or less approximate this ideal. And the less that they do, there are consequences for that. You know, so it's very, very interesting. Yeah, no, it is. And again, this goes back to even, you know, what is the ideal leader, which we've talked about before with uh, Plato. The commentary, it was interesting too, it kind of cited that common experiences strengthen these ties of unity. And I was just thinking how telling that really is. So many of, I mean, not just family relationships where people grow up together, maybe aren't immediate family, but feel as though through their common experiences, as well as, you know, military brothers, as well as just so many other ways in which those experiences uh, unite people. I thought that was just really telling of what it is to be a human again this is like reality right but also just about what unity means in the human sense and on the personable level no absolutely and then we get a little bit of this idea here about how people need to join up with this group and then they need to fulfill their role in this situation so it goes on and it says Water fills up all empty places on the earth and clings fast to it. The social organization of ancient China was based on this principle of the holding together of dependents and rulers. Water flows to unite with water because all parts of it are subject to the same laws. So too should human society hold together through a community of interests that allows each individual to feel himself a member of the whole. So if we remember, you know, with the idea of the state and the individual in the Republic, and this idea of a harmonious person is one where reason is kind of leading the charge, taking the role of leadership, and the rest of the person is kind of following it and being part of that in a very integrated and holistic, uh, harmonious way. And so I think we get another kind of version of that here. For sure. And we've got, so changing line six in the second place. So that means... The second line from the bottom, changing, and it's broken, so it's going to be changing into a straight line. And it says here, if a person seeks association with others as if he were an obsequious office hunter, he throws himself away. He does not follow the path of the superior person who never loses his dignity. So here we, we get this advice that you shouldn't kind of fawn after a superior or a person that's in power over you and that you're kind of throwing away your dignity or yourself there in a certain way and and that's going to undermine you and actually it's going to cause you to not be kind of chosen in the long run 
even if that's what you wanted, you wanted to be chosen. So once again, kind of in line with the good there. And then we've got nine in the fifth place. And then here, I'll just read a part of this commentary. It says, there is depicted here a ruler or influential person to whom people are attracted. Those who come accept. Those who do not are allowed to go their own way. So there's an influential person who has like a powerful, charismatic personality. Some people come and those that don't want to follow are allowed to go their own way. So they're not forced to follow. He invited none, flattered none. All come of their own free will. In this way, there develops a voluntary dependence among those who hold to this person. They do not have to be constantly on their guard, but may express their opinions openly. Police measures are not necessary, and they cleave to the ruler of their own volition. The same principle of freedom is valid for life in general. We should not woo favor from people. If a person cultivates within himself the purity and strength that are necessary for one who is a center of a fellowship, those who are meant for him will come of their own accord. So this is powerful stuff. This is powerful, powerful stuff and good stuff. <laughs> it's quite instructive on you know some of the best ways to rule a, a country as well or to govern. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, and even just how to live your life, right? If you're, it doesn't matter if you're working at Taco Bell or you're like you know one of the leaders in the legislature. This is a good way to live your life. You know, if you cultivate the good qualities of yourself as a person, those things that are going to attract people, the people that matter, the people that recognize these qualities are the ones that you want to have around you anyway, and that's going to naturally happen. So it's, a, it's, it's part of this idea of, I think, right, if we think back about Socrates and the Republic and what is a good life, what is a good state, and he talked about this simple kind of state, you know, people living in this very simple way. Simple, but harmonious and natural in a very basic way, something that's not easy for us to attain. So there's this way in which the kind of simple, natural state that Socrates was talking about is very easy to understand, but not easy to attain. And I think here we get kind of like some kind of more nuanced insight into how that might be something that can be attained in a more straightforward way. Yeah, absolutely. It also shows that just the power of the good itself, right? That, you know, as we've mentioned before, that people are naturally attracted to it. And so if you start to find that within yourself and you start to embody that, then other people seeking the good will be attracted to it. It's just another reminder that that good overcomes bad, really. No, absolutely. So the next hexagram I want to look at is 34. And this is one of these really positive hexagrams that when you read it and you think about it, it's very a, kind of an attractive one. So it's 34, the power of the great. And I'll read some of the commentary here. This hexagram points to a time when inner worth mounts with great force and comes to power. So this is kind of like what we were talking about a minute ago, developing yourself, and now it comes to fruition, it comes to power. But its strength has already passed beyond the median line. So then we get some of that Aristotle stuff, right? Hence there is danger that one may rely entirely on one's own power and forget to ask what is right. So here we get this idea that a person's developed themselves by following the good and the true, and now they've become powerful. And this power now is dangerous because it causes us to think that we're the reason for it. It's about us. It's not about what's good or what's right. And then we overstep our bounds and we're brought down. Right. Then it goes on to say, for that is truly great power, which does not degenerate into mere force, 
but remains inwardly united with the fundamental principle of right and of justice. So it's interesting, right? Because a long time ago, I heard people talking about how when you're on a spiritual journey, one of the first pitfalls for a person is when they develop some spiritual power, because that spiritual power gives them the ability to kind of act in ways and do things that regular people can't do because they can't perceive that reality that the person that's gone down a spiritual path a certain distance is now able to perceive. So it gives them power that other people don't have. And that power kind of corrupts because that's just the nature of, you know, stuff like the ring of Gyges, I guess. <laughs> but, but interestingly, right? Actually, the temptation of Christ in the Bible is very similar, right? Because Satan says to him, you know, if you're hungry, why don't you pick these rocks up and make bread out of them? Or if you, you know, why can't you just jump off this mountain and fly or, you know, so here we get this idea of power and temptation of using this power, right, on a kind of spiritual path. But this is a very down-to-earth version of this, because here we're talking about I've developed myself and in some way perfected myself or at least moved in the direction of perfection, and that's producing some good, powerful results. But then because of that, I am kind of like confused about the source of it, and I forget the source of it, and then I act, and I can create more problems than I would have created without the power. And so that's a kind of a worry there. And then it goes on and talks about this later on. It says, true greatness depends on being in harmony with what is right. Therefore, in times of great power, the superior person avoids doing anything that is not in harmony with the established order. So this is very interesting, right? And this is Stuff that we've heard in other places in Chinese thought, that when a country is powerful, they shouldn't display their weapons. And I think that's in the Tao Te Ching, actually. That a powerful country should not ostentatiously display its weaponry. It should keep them hidden away until they're really needed. So, interesting idea. So then going on from there, we'll talk about one more. And this is an interesting one because it's a dark one. So, number 36. And the name of this is literally darkening of the light. And the image is earth above and fire below. So we have earth on top of fire. So, you know, it's just like you've got a fire going and that fire produces warmth. It keeps everybody happy around the campsite. You're able to cook your food on the fire. You're able to sit around the fire and have a nice conversation and discussion with your friends while you're camping. And then earth covers over the fire. <laughs> the fire gets put out because earth is on top of the fire now and you no longer have the light of the fire you can't cook your food anymore and now it's really cold so it's never good when the light, when the light goes out right so and then once again right this is this metaphor of light and darkness and so here i'll read a little bit of this commentary for 36 it says here the sun has sunk under the earth and that's also right the sun goes down at the end of the day the sun has sunk under the earth and is therefore darkened. The name of the hexagram means literally wounding of the light, wounding of the bright. Hence, the individual lines contain frequent references to this wounding. So here, the idea is that a wise person has a bunch of great ideas, but there is a evil person or a dark person in authority. And that person shuts him down and doesn't allow them to express their good ideas. And so this is, unfortunately, 
the way that humanity goes every once in a while. You'll have people that have very good and powerful ideas that can help the world, help society be structured in a good and powerful and great way. And tyrants, dictators, people that don't have the best interests of humanity at heart have power and they could kill the intellectuals, right? And that we see that in revolutions where the intellectuals are all killed. Or, you know, we see that in dictatorships, tyrannies, where the intellectuals are made to either shut up and be quiet, die, or be of service to the tyrant, right? So <laughs> none of those are good. <laughs> and uh, it's a very interesting hexagram because it is something that does come up in life. You know, every once in a while you'll be at work and you'll have something that you want to do or an idea that you think is good and it just gets shut down and you're like, oh man. And that's like a small version of this, you know? No, 100%. I mean, and as you said, it's not just on a governmental level, it's on a personal level. It's also within nature, which goes back to the consistency that we've all been referencing. But you're right. We definitely do see this and it can be really discouraging, right? I mean, it can be discouraging looking at it because it's like, oh, well, maybe power does succeed or maybe, you know, the darkness prevails over the bright. But it's interesting also because as we've went over before, that's really just a temporary illusion, right? As Socrates showed. And anyway, again, it's just interesting how all these overlap. No, absolutely. And so let's just talk about some changing lines and then we'll put these hexagrams to rest. So a few commentaries on some of the changing lines for this hexagram just because they're really interesting six in the second place so second from the bottom here the lord of light is in a subordinate place and is wounded by the lord of darkness so here we get this kind of like classic fight luke skywalker versus darth vader you know any any number of figures we can think about from stories that are kind of archetypal in nature right so we have this just straightforward, they just come out and say it. The Lord of Light is being wounded by the Lord of Darkness, right? The red lightsaber and the blue lightsaber. But the injury is not fatal. It is only a hindrance. Rescue is still possible. The wounded person gives no thought to himself. He thinks only of saving the others who are also in danger. Therefore, he tries with all of his strength to save all that can be saved. There is a good fortune in thus acting according to duty. So here we see that the... Lord of Light, the good person, goes about trying to save as much as is salvageable in this situation. So it's a, obviously a bad situation that's happening here. We can imagine tanks rolling into town and you're saving everyone you can save and you're trying to take care of things in a very dangerous situation. And then we've got nine in the third place, so third line from the bottom. It seems as if chance were at work. While the strong, loyal person is striving eagerly and in good faith to create order, he meets the ringleader of disorder as if by accident, and seizes him. Thus victory is achieved, but in abolishing abuses, one must not be too hasty. So this would turn out badly because the abuses have been in existence too long. So here we have a situation where the good person, the Lord of Light, as they said earlier, is kind of doing what they do, which is to bring order out of chaos and to help society become a better thing and to benefit people around them. And then they run into the dictator, the tyrant, and they're able to, and it's almost as if it's by chance, they're able to control this source of destruction and then regulate things. But it says you can't do this too quickly because 
there are now bad habits that are kind of, societally speaking, there are bad habits that are in place that have to be dealt with. So it's just kind of a warning if things are changing in that way. The last changing line is six in the fourth place, so fourth from the bottom it says, we find ourselves close to the commander of darkness and so discover his most secret thoughts. So this is a very interesting cryptic line, right? <laughs> we find ourselves close to the commander of darkness and so discover his most secret thoughts. So this is very interesting. So this is like the situation where you're at a very low point in your life and you're going through some bad stuff. One of the things that happens when you go through some bad, miserable stuff in life is that you understand it. You understand the nature of it. And you become deeply and intimately aware of what it is, what it's actually like, and the consequence of that stuff. And so, in other words, you're discovering the innermost secrets of this dark stuff because you yourself are engaged in dark stuff. Right? So, so you start to understand the nature of it. And then that gives rise to the possibility and hope of improvement. And so, you know, this is a very interesting line. So it, sometimes it makes me think about, you know, like a person who's an addict, like, like some heroin addict or someone like that, that's just like engaged in this behavior and now finds themselves in a situation where life isn't good, you know? Life isn't good, and it's really, really bad, and they understand it in a way that other people that don't engage in that kind of activity can't, we really can't understand it, right? So I can't understand the heroin addict when they're suffering in their deepest, most profound way of suffering, but they understand it, and they understand other people that suffer in that way. And so they've kind of gotten to know the commander of darkness and this very intimate way. And so it's very interesting, right? Because that's also part of darkening of the light. And the other thing I wanted to say about this real quick is that just going back to many of our conversations, right? About this idea of creation and destruction in terms of self-destruction and self kind of creation in the sense that we're able to like fortify ourselves and move in the direction of the good and become more real, as we said with Plato. And then we also have this proclivity as humans, I think, to want to tear ourselves down. And part of that has to do with what we just mentioned a little while ago about this idea that, you know, we're kind of stuck between the mortal and the immortal, and we're not really fully participating in either world. And I think one of the things that that circumstance causes in us is this way in which we sometimes, you know, we have a kind of destructive streak that does rear up every once in a while. And uh, I think um, hexagram 36, it's related to that in us. So tonight we went a little bit deeper into the aging and we also looked at some individual hexagrams. We noted their importance and implications, but also how it overlaps, intertwines, and very likely explains reality in its entirety. The only limitation there being the full human understanding of the aging. The hexagrams that we looked at were of particular interest to us, and we tried where possible to compare them to either ancient Greek ideas or ideas that we have discussed previously on the podcast, just to try and tie the materials in for a more holistic listening experience. 
And then now I would like to turn a little bit to simulation theory. So this is interesting because, you know, and if you recall simulation theory, as we briefly covered earlier, at its most basic, it's really just this idea that we're living in some sort of simulated reality. So you might be wondering, well, what does the I Ching have to do with that and how could it possibly be connected? And at first, you know, in this day and age, it makes sense why we'd be talking about simulation theory, right? Because as we mentioned, we live in digital representations of the world around us. We're surrounded by computers, the internet, smartphones, and all sorts of other digital representations. But surprisingly enough, this is not really a new idea. So one interesting thing I found was that in Polynesia, the Mangareva culture, they use binary encodings and so did India, by the way, as far as 5th century BCE. There's also been evidence of these sort of codings and ideas of, you know, possible simulation things all the way back to 12,000 years ago in African tribes, particularly the Odu Ifa of the Yoruba West African peoples. So if we consider, though, just, uh, again, this is not a new idea, but if we just consider there are pretty much four basic possibilities to reality, interesting, it's four, huh? So... Type 1 would be that our reality was created by some conscious entity and has been following the original rules established by that entity. So this is largely encompassing of nearly all traditional religious origin theories, like God created the heavens and the earth for the Judeo-Christians, for example. Um, but it would also include common simulation theories, like we talked about before with Nick Bostrom and his argument he put forward, I think, in 2003 or somewhere around there which is kind of an interesting overlap that those would fall into the same category. But type two would be that our reality was originally created by some conscious entity, but that it's been evolving according to some sort of fundamental evolutionary law ever since. Type three, so you would have two types with a deity and then two types without. So type three would be our reality was not created by an entity, a conscious entity, but that its existence sprang out of nothing. And it's been following the primordial rules of physics ever since. Uh, so to explain the fact that our universe is incredibly fine-tuned uh, for matter, for life. Many materialist cosmologists came up with theories such as uh, we must exist in an infinite set of parallel universes via the anthropic uh, principle that the one we live on appears to be so finely tuned and, you know, it would take an infinite number of universes to kind of strike the one that we have. Again, that's just one possibility. That is type three. And then type four would be that our reality was not created by a conscious entity, but has been evolving to some sort of fundamental evolutionary law from the very beginning. So type one or type two reality would have to be digital uh, or simulated, as we mentioned, right? So the argument will go something like, for a conscious entity to create a world for us to live in and for us to experience, the conscious entity is clearly highly evolved compared to us. And thus being so evolved, that entity would make us in the most efficient way to create a reality. So a continuous reality is not only inefficient, but it's theoretically impossible to create because it involves infinities, right? And the temporal domain, as well as other spatial domains and properties, it, it would be extremely difficult to create that. Of course, you know, there are always possibilities that our computing levels right now are really, really finite and small compared to some sort of evolved entity. But but turning to the fourth type just for a minute, so reality would likely also be digital in the fourth type as well. So the first, the second, and the fourth, they would all be a digital reality for similar reasons. So even though that a conscious entity wouldn't be the creator in the fourth, 
the fundamental evolutionary law would favor a perfectly functional reality uh, that wouldn't require infinite resources. So this would leave only the third where it would be a continuous analog reality. But, but the scary thing is even then it wouldn't even be required. So let's just look real quick at MIT cosmologist and mathematician Max Tegmark. He succinctly said, quote, we've never measured anything in physics to more than about a 16th of uh, significant digits, and no experiment has been carried out whose outcome depends on the hypothesis that a true continuum exists or hinges on the nature of computing something uncomputable. So by this, there's no reason to assume a priori that the world is continuous and that there may be evidence to the contrary. So like, for example, infinite resolution implies that matter implodes into black holes at subplank scales. And we don't actually observe that. It would also imply that relativity and quantum mechanics cannot coexist. But again, that's not really what we see. And so taking all of this together, it seems like type four is not only the most likely reality we live in, but it's most likely a, a simulation. Because no other type or of reality structure or origin can be shown to be anywhere near as consistent. And again, this is looking at philosophical, cosmological, mathematical, metaphysical, and experimental evidence that we have. So then where does that leave us with the aging? Well, as we mentioned, the aging, like DNA, it captures every possible outcome in 64 combinations. It captures the world that we live in. It captures emotions, colors, directions, family hierarchies. It captures, you know, all sorts of medical things, right? It's actually a pattern that can be seen repeatedly throughout the entire world that we know. And so much so that it's been believed to be something like a manual to the universe itself. We can call it the programmer's manual. So if we just think about for a second, if this is the manual, and let's just acknowledge the enormous complexity, the still hidden mysteries, and its divine and unknown nature. But if this is the manual, it would mean that we're almost certainly within a simulated or a digital reality, and that this is merely the means by which it was programmed. So what are some of your thoughts on whether or not this could be a manual or what that would mean for us going forward or how you would look at the aging differently? Those are great, great points, right? And so very interestingly, right, Confucius on his deathbed is supposedly, right, on his deathbed said that if he had 50 more years to live, he would spend every moment working on the I Ching. So that just tells you what Confucius thought about the I Ching, you know, and, and he's, he's right up there in terms of profound people that we should pay attention to. But the I Ching, a lot of things we've kind of mentioned in the last two episodes, today's episode and the episode before, kind of all come together in a weird way with these simulation ideas, right, that you were just talking about. And for one, we have this idea of turtles, okay, and tortoises. Okay, what is the significance of turtles and tortoises? Well, it's really strange that kind of the basic idea of reality is connected to these turtles and tortoises in some very kind of basic sense in lots of different cultures. So lots and lots and lots of different cultures have this idea of turtles being at the bottom of things. And that's just, as I said before, a very bizarre idea and then you have this idea of Fu Shi looking at the back of a tortoise and getting the I Ching, and then the I Ching being this text potentially that is antediluvian or pre-flood. So, you know, you, you, we can only guess, right? But, and obviously these are, you know, you know not, these aren't like ideas that we can verify or know for sure that this is the case or anything like that. So 
you know, it would be definitely something that Plato would put in the form of a myth if he was going to talk about it. So it's nothing we can know for sure, but it is interesting that the story is basically that either Fushi created this and he was the kind of like primary, basic, original philosopher and thinker, or he brought it with him on the ark from the pre-flood world. And so it was the one piece of technology that made it through. And that seems really bizarre, right? And the fact that it's binary, the fact that it mirrors the way in which genetics works. And with genetics, we get every possible form of life that exists right now. And then the fact that we have this idea of archetypes and that it's able to capture all the different social interactions that can occur. And then not only the social interactions that can occur, but how those social interactions could change to give rise to the next social interaction that's going to occur or state of life. And the fact that it's got this binary quality and the fact that, as you said, right, our ability to create a simulation right now is dependent on binary. We are on the cusp right now of developing artificial, an artificial reality, right? That's not a real reality. It's a virtual reality that people are going to probably, I mean, I can just imagine just given the way the internet has affected people. If you create a world that people can go to where they have more power, more ability, they can determine how they're going to appear in that world so they can be whatever person they want to be in that world. That's going to be a very, very attractive place for people to want to be. And we know that's already happening right now. We're not far from that. So it could be. <laughs> that the world we're in right now sort of started that way in some in some sense. And as you said, right, maybe the I Ching is the kind of like the code that was used, or it's some kind of a key to understanding it or unlocking it. Certainly, lots of very wise people thought there was something great about the I Ching. And it is a big puzzle. And we'll talk about it a little bit later, but we'll talk about Fichte and some other uh, philosophers a little bit closer to our time, last one or 200 years and less, less than that when we get to the existential thinkers. And we'll look at some other possibilities about the nature of reality and then breaking through these levels of reality and what that would look like or what that means or if it's possible. So some interesting things to, to think about. And yeah, it's hard to know exactly what to make of the I Ching and what to make of simulation theory. Should we just carry on kind of like Hume when he'd gotten into a melancholy state by doing too much philosophy? Should we just drink some beer and play pool and not worry about it too much? Enjoy that steak in uh, the matrix, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, it, it's funny too, you know, even if you think about the, the Noah or the Fushi or whatever, you know, an arc is kind of in some ways kind of like a turtle. It's like a human turtle in, in the way of like, you know, things being like the world's built on the back of a turtle, right? It's like something to make us float above the water long enough to survive. But, you know, I guess maybe just to muddy the waters just a little bit. Um, <laughs> what what if we can't find evidence of a simulation, right? And this is kind of what you were, you're speaking of too. And so they have actually done some mathematic, I don't know, some, some experiments looking at it, especially at the California Institute of Technology. And Human Awadi, he's one of the people kind of leading the charge there in responding to whether or not we could detect evidence of a simulation. And he said, quote, 
if simulation has infinite computing power, there's no way you're going to see that you're living in a virtual reality because it could compute whatever you want the degree of realism to be. And so he says, quote, if this thing can be detected, you have to start from the principle that it has limited computational resources, which I think is, is a really important point when talking about simulation theory, basically kind of like trying to look for a glitch in a video game. But anyway, so they've looked at trying to test potential paradoxes through quantum physics experiments and, and all sorts of stuff. And, you know, it quickly goes over pretty much everyone's head unless you're really into this stuff. But suffice it to say that some people just conclude, well, you know, everything is decided when you just look at it and the rest is simulation. So again, a little bit above my pay grade to get too deep into it. But I, I would just also bring in real quick Occam's razor, which states that in the absence of other evidence, the simplest explanation is the more likely to be correct. So, I mean, simulation theory is pretty elaborate, right? I mean, it assumes that realities nested upon realities need to exist, as well as simulated entities that cannot ever tell whether or not they're being inside of a simulation and, and so on. So maybe we don't live in a simulation at all. But I hope this did inspire some thoughts, some conversations, hopefully, among you and your friends and, and your own search for truth. And uh, thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time as we search for truth on the road that never ends.